Hey everybody, this is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Basic Podcast. Today, we're back with another installment of the Basic Project, where you, the audience, submit your podcasts. Today's topic is shortness of breath, with a focus on COPD. While we did an episode on shortness of breath a long time back, it's always great to get a new perspective, and the authors will also review treatment of COPD in the emergency department. Our guests today are Drs. Tim Peck and Colby Redfield, and I will let them introduce themselves fully in the podcast. They are also launching a new EM foam website called iClickEM.com, and they will tell you all about it at the very beginning of the podcast. They also have a cameo from a very special guest. You may have heard of him before, the one, the only, Peter Rosen. He's kind of a big deal in emergency medicine. He not only has the leather-bound books, he has written all of those leather-bound books in EM as well. Before we get started, a few housekeeping things. First, I want to say that I am sorry for the drop-off in podcasts. I started an online master's in medical education in September, and it has taken most of the time that I usually spend producing new episodes. Starting now, I'm down from two classes each semester down to one, so that should give me the time to get back on it. This is where I need your help. I need submissions for the Basic project so we can keep the knowledge flowing when things are super busy for myself. So if you're an EM senior resident or attending, or you know someone who you think could create a great podcast, please, please, please send them my way. Go to embasic.org, look at the available topics, and email me with your choice, or feel free to suggest one of your own. Since you've waited so long for a new episode, I will break my own rule and give a sneak peek of the next episode. This is going to be a big one, and it's going to be in two parts. Ladies and gentlemen, the most controversial topic in all of EM, and maybe all of medicine pulmonary embolism. I intentionally stayed away from this topic for a long time because it's one of the most hotly debated areas in all of EM, and boiling it down to two succinct podcasts is a big challenge. I may have it completed by the end of the year, but if not, expect it first thing once we hit 2014. Finally, it's time for my own disclaimer. This podcast does not represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. All right, let's get started with shortness of breath and COPD by Drs. Tim Peck and Colby Redfield. There's only four or five ways you can die. That's a death spiral. And a rectal. Very aggressive intern. He'll kill somebody. They're just a little fatter than Their lungs are still garbage. So tell me when to bite the bullet and give the goddamn drug. Brain, don't worry. Life is better than you think. We need straightforward questions for straightforward answers. Hi everyone from EM Basic. My name is Tim Peck, Chief Resident at BIDMC, Harvard Affiliated Residency. I am excited to have this opportunity to be on EM Basic. And with me is Colby Redfield, one of our junior residents. Hi to all the listeners of EM Basic. I'm Kobe Redfield, and I am currently a second year at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. I'm excited about being on EM Basic, but even more excited about our guest speaker today, the one and only Dr. Peter Rosen. Peter Rosen needs little introduction. He's a founder of our specialty, is the Rosen of the textbook Rosen's Emergency Medicine, and anyone who has had the privilege to hear him speak or know him knows that he tells it like it is. He spends his summers with us at BI, and we are fortunate to have interviewed Dr. Rosen for this podcast. Before we start our podcast today, we will attend to a few house cleaning details. 
This podcast does not represent the views or opinions of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center or Harvard. Any content in this podcast, which can be supported by peer-reviewed published evidence or expert opinion, will be accompanied by links in our show notes. Our expert peer reviewer of this podcast was Dr. Jonathan Fisher, an attendant at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. I'm proud to announce that today is the beta release of iClickEM.com. This is a project I've been working on for over two years now, and it's finally a reality. iClickEM is a free search engine which provides EM-relevant information only. Content includes the entirety of FoamMed, PubMed, and even subscription-based content like UpToDate when signed in behind your institution's firewall. You can go to iClickEM.com to utilize the search engine but you'll also start to see our search bar featured on many FOMED resources, including Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, EM Lyceum, and EM Basic. This resource has the potential to change the way we as EM learners consume the internet. Go to iClickEM.com and try it out for yourself. The more people who use the site, the stronger the algorithms which drive the search engine become and the better it will be for everyone in our community. Thank you to everyone who helped make this a reality, and I'm honored to announce this beta release on the EM Basic podcast. Before we get started with our chief complaint today, let's hear a little bit from Peter Rosen. You're all these drugs that we're supposed to be using, and we spend more time talking about why we shouldn't use them than when we should use them. That's such Classical internal medicine, non-thinking. Okay, drugs have a side effect. Everything we do in medicine has a side effect. So tell me when to bite the bullet and give the goddamn drug. Don't consider it. Do it. Because that is what distinguishes the emergency physician. I can listen to Peter speak all day. We'll need to release the full version of our interviews at some point. Let's move on to the case. Tim, what do the vitals show? Heart rate, 70 AFib. Blood pressure, 140 over 80. Respiratory rate, 28. O2, 98% non-rebreather. And temperature, 98.2. This patient has tachypnea, which is important to us because it has been shown that tachypnea is more predictive of badness than fever and tachycardia, vitals we normally associate with sick patients. While I'm walking to the room, Tim, what should I be thinking about? I approach shortness of breath by systems, and when I'm teaching this to interns, I draw a little stick man on a piece of paper. I start inside and then work my way out. I draw some lungs. What can occur in the lungs? Pneumonia, COPD, asthma, CHF, cancer. Outward to the airways, foreign bodies, obstruction, epiglottitis. Then further outward to the pleural space, pneumothorax, effusions, and further out to the chest wall and diaphragm, trauma, rib fractures, diaphragm dysfunction from Guillain-Barre syndrome or myasthenia gravis. And then back to the middle, I draw the heart, MI and angina, diastolic heart failure, myocarditis, pericardial effusions, outward to the arteries from the heart, PE, aortic stenosis, aortic dissection, and then what's carried in those arteries, the systemic causes, acidoses including DKA, sepsis, toxins, anemia, and finally the brain, opioids, edema, 
brainstem dysfunction, and stroke. That is a pretty daunting list, but at least we can narrow it down a lot by our physical exam and history of present illness. This is a real example of where outside study can be brought to the bedside. Colby, what do you look for in the exam when you first see the patient? What separates emergency medicine from any other specialty is our ability to recognize sick versus not sick. When I walk into the room and look at the patient, I like to see, are they alert? How are they sitting? Are they working to breathe? Do they look uncomfortable? Are they able to speak in full sentences? You are able to gain a lot of information within the first few seconds you walk into a room. Peter Rosen has some great advice on this. Well, I think that the difficulty with dyspnea is the immediate determination of how hard is the patient working to breathe. You can be dyspneic from having just run 100 yards when you haven't run for five years and there's nothing wrong with your physiology, you're just out of breath. You can be dyspneic because you are in bad trouble and I think that one of the things that you have to learn how to do quickly in emergency medicine is get a feel for which patients look ill. I would start by saying your first impression is very important here. How old is the patient? How bad do they look? Do they look like they're in distress? Are they cyanotic? Are they sweating? What, uh, what's your general impression of the patient? Do they look like someone who has been healthy but has an acute problem, or do they look like someone who's been sick and has a chronic problem? And then I think the second question is, how much help does the patient need immediately? You see, the, the real chore in emergency medicine is not to make the diagnosis, but it's to figure out how the patient is dying. Well, there's almost an infinite number of diagnoses possible, but they all lead to a final common pathway. And there's only four or five ways you can die. You can't breathe. Your heart can't work. You don't have enough volume. You don't have enough oxygen. So which path is the patient on? So the first question with this news is the patient sick? patient's not sick, then you can slow down and take your time about what you have to do to rescue the patient. You look at someone and you can tell they're well or you can tell they're not well. You can't tell how they're sick. You can't tell from what they're sick and you don't know exactly how sick they are at first glance, but you can certainly tell whether somebody is working hard to breathe. Do they look pale? Do they look blue? Are they fighting for air? Are they able to talk in more than one word sentences? Are they sitting up? Uh, are they lying down? What are they doing in order to get air? Are they making noise as they breathe? Those are things that you can actually see instantaneously. Patient's sick, and the first question to ask is, does this patient need to have his airway managed? And the chances are, if you ask that question, the answer is yes. When you pull back the curtain to see our patient, the first thing you notice is that he has air hunger. He literally looks like he's trying to eat the air. Like a fish out of water. He gulps for the air. 
but when he exhales, he purses his lips and pushes air out, like this. The patient is skinny, but you notice his big barrel chest forcefully expanding and collapsing. You make sure the patient's shirt comes off, and you notice he is using accessory muscles to breathe. What exactly does that mean? It means recruiting muscles that you don't normally use to breathe, to make your inspiration and your expiration stronger. In skinny patients, you can usually see the scalenes working overtime. The little muscles, just superior to the clavicles, and the divot anterior to the deltoids. Yes, thank you, Colby. You can also see the intercostals firing. And then in everyone, especially obese people, look at the epigastrum. Do it for yourself right now. A deep breath should make your epigastrum puff outwards on inspiration. In someone in respiratory distress, you may see the epigastrum instead suck inwards. What you're saying is that this patient is sick. With someone this sick, it is going to be important to be able to take a good, quick history that's to the point. One of the things that drives me crazy about medical students and interns is that they get associated complaints that do not have meaning and want to start working the patient up for that. patient comes in for a sprained ankle and they somehow ask the patient if he has chest pain and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of two sets of enzymes, the EKGs and cardiac workups on a patient. That's a sprained ankle. <laughs> yeah. Don't be so afraid of missing something. Start with how does the patient look? Does the patient look sick? Does the patient look anxious? Does the patient look well? Does the patient look stable? If they do, then calm down. Check we'll try to find a life-threatening disease on everybody. Ten, how do you obtain a history in a patient with shortness of breath that is sick? It's hard because they may only be able to say a few words without needing to take another breath. And if they're tiring out and losing mental status, you only get a few questions in before they don't talk to you at all. You need to act quickly. I need their attention and I tell them, look, you're sick. You're in the right place where people can help you. And I know there's a lot going on right now, but focus on me and give me short answers to my direct questions. And then I start rattling off the questions that are most important. The first thing I ask is, are you having chest pain? If they are, you're more worried about MI or angina, and the upcoming EKG and diagnostics will be much easier to interpret. If the answer is no, I directly focus on the shortness of breath. That is a great tip. Trying to rule out other important diagnoses and then focusing on the chief complaint. Like many chief complaints, timing is everything. You need straightforward questions for straightforward answers. I start with onset. Directly ask the patient, can you remember exactly when this started? If they say no, that's okay. Say to them, so it started gradually and then got worse? If it happened gradually, then you ask, did it suddenly get worse? And if so, when? Now you know the onset, the duration, the course of disease in a matter of seconds. Our patient says it started about two days ago, then got much worse this morning after he got out of bed on his way to the bathroom. Okay, Colby, what else do you ask? Now you ask your supporting questions. Does it vary with position? Did you fall? Have you ever had a pulmonary embolism? 
any new leg swelling or pain? Do you have a cough, with or without mucus, fevers, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain? Are you on blood thinners? Are you lightheaded? Vision changes. Do you have any rashes? Rattle them off, and if any answer is yes, follow that lead. What does the patient tell you? No chest pain. Shortness of breath has been going on for a couple of days, and then got worse this morning. He tried home nebulizers, which didn't work. Called EMS. EMS tells you they gave him nebs, and his O2 went from 70 to 88% on non-rebreather. He looks a little better than when they picked him up. They gave him an aspirin, just in case. This brings up a good point. Remember to be good to your EMS colleagues. They can be your best friends in a case like this and provide a lot of information to help treat this patient. They've bailed me out more than once on cases like this. Good point, Colby. Here's what Peter has to say about getting a history on a patient with shortness of breath. You have to be patient because when you're in respiratory distress, it's hard to talk and you don't have much patience for answering questions. The patient is not a bad historian. The doctor is. And the reason the patient isn't a bad historian is they don't know what they're supposed to know. Moreover, you have to understand that patients have a wide range of language capability. There are many people in our society who probably function with a 200-word vocabulary. So when you ask them if they have pain, they can say yes or no, but they don't know what throbbing pain, radiating pain, or burning pain. All they know is they hurt, and they hurt now, and they can tell you where they hurt. But you've got to get a feel for how much the patient can tell you. And can you come up with the analogies that the patient can understand. How bad is the pain? Is it like when you got kicked in the balls? <laughs> or is it like a toothache? You, you must come up with some means of making the patient relate to what you're asking. But if they can't tell you those things, it doesn't make them a bad historian. Moving on to the physical exam. What aspects are important with shortness of breath? Look in the mouth. For pharyngitis, yes, but also for malampati score and dentures, in case this guy is headed toward an intubation. Check for JVD, loud heart murmurs, distal extremities, and a rectal. Very aggressive intern. And of course the lungs. Not all that wheezes is asthma and COPD, but if the story's right, treat it. What are the pertinent physical exam findings on this patient? Respiratory rate of 28, no JVD, wheezing throughout on top of otherwise quiet breath sounds, no edema or pain in extremities, and no fever. And guaiac? Guaiac negative. A quick review so far. We have an elderly male with two days of shortness of breath that become acutely worse this morning and on exam, he appears to be in respiratory distress that is most consistent with the COPD exacerbation. Okay, so it's settled. Our patient has a COPD exacerbation. Let's move on to diagnostics. In real life, history, physical exam, and diagnostics are happening concurrently, especially if the patient is sick. While you are asking him questions, you and your team are also getting the labs, finger stick, and EKG, putting in an IV, and putting the ultrasound on his chest. If you're performing an HNP without concurrently doing diagnostics in the ED, 
you'll kill somebody. We are going to start treating this patient with COPD, but we still need to make sure we are not missing other diagnoses, and that is where lab tests come in. Peter has great advice on when to order testing. Think about it in two terms of two things. How is it going to change your management, and would you want that information if you had to pay for it out of your pocket? You want to grab a quick chest x-ray to look for pneumonia, pneumothorax, or other causes for a shortness of breath. Bedside ultrasound can quickly show serious causes of shortness of breath, like pneumothorax, pericardial or pleural effusion, CHF, and even signs of PE. You can also grab a quick B&P if CHF exacerbation is still a concern. And don't forget about the EKG, since dyspnea can be an acute coronary syndrome equivalent or a sign of toxicologic metabolic derangement. CBC is good for ruling out anemia. Chem 7 for those toxibolic, metabolic, acid-based arrangements, and a VBG for respiratory status. Currently, Gold does not recommend obtaining a peak flow due to it being inaccurate in a COPD exacerbation. And what about a D-dimer for this patient? Only in the right clinical setting, but that would take a whole nother podcast to explain, but in this patient, definitely not. To help us better understand treatment, we first need to realize what is causing the patient to have shortness of breath in COPD. Understanding this has to do with understanding normal respiration. The main purpose of exhalation is to get rid of CO2, waste product of cellular respiration. The CO2 travels from the cells into the blood and across the alveoli into the airways and out of the body. In the COPD, there are a few obstacles preventing the release of CO2. The first is destruction of alveoli. You can appreciate this on physical exam by the lack of normal lung sounds due to large boli left over from the destroyed lungs. This means there is less opportunity for gas exchange because your lung capillaries have trouble matching up with your lung tissue to rid your blood of the CO2. Furthermore, this doesn't allow you to oxygenate as well either, and so your CO2 receptors tell your brain that you're starving for oxygen and you pick up your respiratory rate to compensate. But the CO2 still builds up, and therefore the acid builds up, which is really what puts your brain into overdrive. The second obstacle is due to the inflammation, the mucus, and the debris that builds up in the airways, which is the bronchitis portion of this disease. This causes the airways to be tight. Humans have no problem generating the pressure needed to pull air in through these airways by dropping their diaphragm and expanding their lungs. And if their diaphragm needs help, we'll start to recruit accessory muscles of respiration. The problem with COPD lies in the generating enough force to blow that air out. The whistling through these tight airways is the reason you appreciate on your physical exam. A patient with a COPD flare has a long expiratory phase to allow the time necessary to get rid of all that trapped air filled with CO2. And you see this on chest x-ray, which looks hyperinflated. Now you can understand why these people can spiral out of control unless treated. The airways tighten up and the blood turns to acid. Acid makes the brain increase your respiratory rate, and an increase in respiratory rate just means more opportunity for air trapping and CO2 retention. Eventually, the brain gets soaked in acid and stops working at all. That's a death spiral. So tight airways and air trapping 
plus destroyed lung tissue causing mismatching with blood vessels equals acidic blood. Got it? The emergency management of COPD makes sense if you keep the pathophys we just spoke about in mind. Our main goal is to open up the airways quickly so they can release air that is trapped in their lungs. Once we've opened up those airways, we also want to support the patient's respiratory mechanics so they don't tire out and they can keep blowing off the CO2 themselves. And finally, we want to prevent the airways from closing back up and just spiraling right back into a COPD flare. The mainstay of COPD treatment is inhaled albuterol. Albuterol is a short-acting beta-2 agonist. It binds the beta-2 receptors found on the smooth muscle cells of the bronchioles and relaxes and dilates the airways. This combats the patient's wheezing and allows the copd -er to exhale more efficiently, which allows the copd -er to blow up more CO2 and makes the blood less acidic, which, remember, is the goal. It is a quick-on, quick-off medicine and will not keep the airways open for long. Therefore, you should give albuterol in nebulized form every 20 minutes until the patient has improved, or you can even give it to them continuously. Is there any evidence that albuterol is effective? There's debate about how to exactly administer albuterol, but it's really a parachute drug. Do you know what a parachute drug is? Yeah, you're never going to go skydiving without a parachute. Exactly. You're never going to treat a copd -er without a beta-2 agonist. Is there any other medications that can help open up the airways? Ipratropium is a short-acting inhaled bronchodilator, which causes smooth muscles and airways to relax. But it's an anticholinergic medicine rather than a beta agonist. Ipratropium takes a little longer to work than albuterol, but for ease of delivery, we give them together in one nebulizer, Q20 minutes. Ipratropium is not systemically absorbed, and so affects the lungs only. Albuterol, on the other hand, can have some short-acting systemic effects, mainly in the form of tachycardia. Some advocate that the two drugs are synergistic and using them together will mean using less drug and therefore will decrease side effects, but evidence for this is lacking and is a matter of debate. Again, it is important to note that albuterol and ipratropium are short-acting medications. They don't fix the problem permanently, they just temporarily open up the airways, which helps the COPD or regulate their acid-base status. But if you don't give them anything else, they'll just close back up and start to wheeze again. This is where asthma and COPD are different. Asthma, for the most part, is a disease of intermittent temporary crises, whereas COPD is a permanent state with exacerbations. When a COPD is done with their exacerbation, their lungs are still garbage. When EMS tells you we gave the patient NEBS and they look a bit better, that's your cue to take them at their word and give the patient a NEB of your own. Because again, it's only a temporary fix and you need to keep hitting them with their meds if the disease is bad. Another interesting but very important to understand difference between a COPD or with shortness of breath and an asthmatic with healthy lung parenchyma with shortness of breath is that the NEBS should really be given under compressed air instead of oxygenated air. Why shouldn't you give oxygenated air? You want to keep any patient at or as close to physiologic level of O2 in their blood as possible. 
COPDers live at a chronically low blood oxygen level, and if you bring the oxygen tension in their blood to superphysiologic levels, you can kill them by suppressing their respiratory drive. How does this happen? Remember that CO2 is what drives normal breathing. A healthy person doesn't know they're suffocating until the O2 sat is below about 90%. COPDers are at levels of O2 below 90% every day, which means, unlike a healthy person, an important and strong part of their everyday respiratory drive has to do with hypoxemia. So if you slap oxygen on a patient and their O2 sat goes to 100%, you can kill them. You just told their brain, brain, don't worry, life is better than you think, the O2 is fine, stop breathing so fast. These patients need kidney to survive. By over-oxygenating them, you've just told them that they don't need to be tachypneic, and it's your fault that you're turning their bloods and brains into acid. All right, so albuterol and ipatropium are shorter-acting drugs that keep the airways open, especially on exhalation. And our O2 goal should be what their everyday oxygen saturation is. If you don't know, make sure it does not go any higher than 94%. Right. So what can we do to keep their airways open that isn't as short-acting? That is where corticosteroids come in. Steroids work as an anti-inflammatory, but it is important to realize that you won't see the effects of these until hours later. So get them on as soon as possible. To reference Peter Rosen earlier in our podcast, don't think about it, do it, and give 125 milligrams of solumedrol. This is grade A evidence per gold, which means that they have randomized controlled trials for rich body of data. Studies have shown that steroids decrease recovery time, improve lung function, reduce arterial hypoxemia, reduce early relapse, reduce treatment failure, and also reduce length of hospital stay. The length of steroid dose was under debate, but the reduced trial, reduction in the use of corticosteroids and exacerbated COPD, which was published in JAMA in June 2013, showed that five-day course of 40 milligrams of prednisone was non-inferior to a 14-day course. This was a randomized trial that was multi-center with a total of 314 patients. So far, we've spoken about short-acting albuterol and ipratropium, which are very effective at relieving airway smooth muscle constriction, and we've spoken about steroids, which open up airways by decreasing inflammation, but take a while to work. I think it's time to start talking about antibiotics. Current guidelines by GOLD recommend you give antibiotics if you have all three of the following. Increased sputum, dyspnea, and sputum purulence. This is grade B evidence, which stands for randomized controlled trials, but with a limited body of data. Again, those three symptoms are increased sputum, shortness of breath, and sputum purulence. There is grade C evidence to support antibiotic therapy if a COPD exacerbation has two of the cardinal symptoms, with one of them including increased sputum purulence. Grade C evidence represents non-randomized or observational studies. Another grade B evidence for antibiotic use are those who require mechanical ventilation, including invasive and non-invasive. What about the duration of antibiotics? Well, there is no clear consensus, but Gold currently recommends a total course of 5 to 10 days with it being grade D evidence, which stands for a bunch of old people sitting around a table saying it sounds like a good idea. 
Tim, what antibiotic should I use? You can use macrolides, tetracyclines, fluoroquinolones, or even amoxicillin for COPD exacerbations. But I like fluoroquinolones because levofloxacin and moxifloxacin can both be given in a five-day course. You're already going to give these patients a five-day course of prednisone, so why not give them five days of both drugs? When should I intubate COPD patients? In COPD, the question is not when you intubate, but how can you avoid intubation? Intubation is a privilege that people like Peter Rosen fought for us to use in the ED. Think about how dangerous and powerful it is to take someone's ability to breathe away. So use it wisely. Evidence shows that patients requiring second pass attempts have a much higher mortality rate than those who don't. There are many deadly complications which can occur with any intubation, but COPD comes with its own pitfalls. There are two curves to keep in mind. The curve most consider is the O2 dissociation curve. It's often difficult to pre-oxygenate COPD patients up to 100% before you intubate. If you're intubating someone at 92% O2, after you paralyze them, they're going to be 60% in a matter of seconds. The less considered curve is the curve associated with acid-base buffering systems. If you're intubating at a pH of 7.4, then you have time for the buffer to eat up any acid generated, and the pH won't budge that much. However, if you're intubating at a pH of 7.1, you need to move quickly because you'll have a pH of 6.9 in no time, and brains and bodies don't function that well soaked in acid. Anyone who is experiencing extreme acidemia needs to be intubated quickly and efficiently. The next set of problems arises after the patient is intubated. In order to help these patients, we should need to set the respiratory rate high and the minute volume high in order to blow off CO2. But both of those things can cause serious problems in the COPD. A high respiratory rate leads to air trapping which leads to increased intrathoracic pressure, which leads to decreased cardiac preload, hypotension, and finally asystole. Increase in volume in these patients with horrible lung parenchyma leads to iatrogenic pneumothorax. Do we have any ways to avoid intubation on these types of patients? BiPAP can work wonders on these patients and give you the time you need to turn them around fix their obstructive and inflammatory issues with the other medications we've already discussed. If you have a COPD or who is in respiratory distress, mechanically splint open their airways with positive pressure as soon as possible. This has been shown in the literature too. We have done our workup in the emergency department and treated this patient. How do we decide disposition? Does this patient go home, get admitted to the floor, or even the unit? Peter has thoughts on this. The patient who's been admitted before is likely to be admitted again. It's kind of like crime. And there's an old rule in medicine. If something develops slowly, you can't fix it quickly. And those are patients who need slow cure. But unfortunately, we're not allowed to use a hospital that way anymore. ICU is the easiest disposition. If you've intubated them, or if you cannot safely take them off positive pressure in the emergency department, they need to go to a higher level of care thus the unit. Some patients are also obvious admits to the ward. 
patients with other acute comorbidities that are going to allow for a quick recovery like pneumonia, anemia, or CHF need to be admitted. Patients who aren't back to their baseline O2 or baseline exercise function shouldn't go home. This means you need to walk your patients if you plan on trying to send them home. The hardest dispo is deciding if someone is safe to go home or not. You need to ask yourself, will they live through another exacerbation? Because no matter how good they look to you now, there is no guarantee they won't have another. If the patient is back to their baseline, challenge yourself and challenge the patient to think about their immediate future and what will happen to them if they go home. Will they be able to get their medications from the pharmacy? Will they be able to take their meds or do they have someone to give them their meds? But most importantly, if they start to close up again and have an exacerbation at 2 a.m., will they be able to get out of bed, find someone to help them or call 911 themselves, pull on their own puffers, and get to the hospital before their blood becomes acidic and their brain stop working properly? If you are a medical student or a resident, I would challenge you to make this decision on your own and tell your attendant why you think the patient should go home or not. This is the hardest skill to achieve in the emergency department, and it only comes with time and commitment. Tim, I think it's time to wrap up today's podcast. What are the key points that we learned today? Shortness of breath has a wide differential. Vital signs must be interpreted in the setting of the H&P. Don't treat the numbers, treat the patient. HPI is about pertinent negatives and narrowing your differential. Physical exam findings classic for COPD include long inspiratory to expiratory ratio, wheezing on top of silent breath sounds, breathing through pursed lips, and using accessory muscles to breathe. Don't hesitate to treat concurrently with information gathering. Follow mental status, respiratory mechanics, and VBGs to judge clinical status. Albuterol continuously or Q20 minutes until they feel better. Ipratropium with the albuterol. O2 goal is about 94%. Solumedrol, 125 milligrams IV given right away, plus a five-day course of 40 milligrams prednisone as per the REDUCE trial. The best evidence we have for antibiotics are to give them if they have purulent mucus, increased sputum, and shortness of breath. Use fluoroquinolones, azithromycin, or augmentin. I like fluoroquinolones because of the five-day course. And avoid intubation at all costs. And use CPAP and BiPAP liberally. That is all, folks. Again, it was great pleasure to have this opportunity to be on EM Basic. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and can apply this to your practice. Be sure to go to iClickEM and search COPD for a collection of all the best and most relevant resources to EM physicians. On behalf of Colby Redfield and myself, Timothy Peck, we are grateful for the opportunity to be on EM Basic, and thanks Steve Carroll 